Uh, we've been in the series where we're talking about our mission statement, what makes us us, what shapes us. And part of that practice is to kind of recite together these words that we're using to kind of shape us as a church family. So we're going to say this together, this being our mission statement, and then we can jump into the message portion of the service. Let's say this together. We exist to invite people to apprenticeship to Jesus, learning to live by faith, transmit hope, and be known by love. Great. You can have a seat. Like I said, we are, um, I'm going to, give me two seconds. I need a bottle of water for a second. My throat's a little dry. There we go. Uh, like I said, we're in this series, we're talking about where are we going, what are the things that shapes us uh, as a church, and whether you're a longtime Crossroadian or you're relatively new, this is a good thing for us to do. It's a good practice for us to do from time to time to kind of refocus our church and refocus each other to what is it that we're trying to do, what is it that we're going to be known by as a church family. Uh, these are the practices, these are the things that we center in uh, around, our center our whole church around, that help us cooperate with the Holy Spirit to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And what would be distinct about us? What would make this place, these, this campus and these services and this fellowship distinctive? And, and what is it going to be that we are about? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we started the series by looking at Jesus' main message all of his earthly ministry, what was his main message that he talked about over and over again? And we looked at scripture and we came to realize that his main message was the availability of the kingdom of God. That the availability of the kingdom of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that we have this available life in his kingdom right now that is available to us, that we can learn to live in his reality and in the goodness of his life and we will be prepared for the rest of our existence that we when we surrender our life to him and we turn from our self-reliant ways and we learn to live in his life then we can learn to live this abundant fruitful life-giving life that we our souls actually been made for and that's available to us right now jesus says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the good news. This is the gospel that Jesus proclaims. And the invitation that Jesus gives is to become his apprentice or his disciple, his student, to learn from Jesus how to live in this life that's available to us only through grace and faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus' message that a life of faith is a way of living in the reality of God's good kingdom available right now to us in this side of eternity. It's a way of living. It's not a set of doctrinal beliefs. It's not something that you can check off on, on your calendar, but it's a way of living. It's a incorporating all of my life, my body, my mind, my heart. Everything is surrounded when Jesus invites us to become his apprentice or his student in learning how to live, to learn to live my life the way he would live it if he were living my life. 
And as we follow Jesus in this road of apprenticeship, we gradually experience the inner transformation of our heart. Our wills, our bodies, our minds are actually changed in order to live more routinely and easily the way Jesus would do this abundant life. So this is the good news that Jesus comes proclaiming, that a a new life is available to us, and the invitation is to trust and to learn to live that as we become his apprentices. And then we said that as apprentices to Jesus, apprentices are people who are learning to live by faith, trusting and believing, confident in the ways of Jesus. We are people who are transmitting hope, which means we proclaim and we demonstrate with our own lives the reality of this life in God's good kingdom. And thirdly, we would be known by our love. Known by our love. In order for each of these characteristics, this learning to live by faith, confidence in Jesus and the way of Jesus, transmitting hope, proclaiming and demonstrating the reality of that life in our own life, and being known by love. There are soul-shaping practices. There are things that we do that cooperate with the Holy Spirit, both individually but also collectively. As, as a church family, there are practices that we engage in that kind of act as a framework of formation. These are not legalistic rules that we have to abide by, but they're a framework, a graceful, graceful framework of formation that we interact with And that we unashamedly invite each one of us into. That we unashamedly invite you to to take up one or more of these practices into your life. That over time, if we practice them, both individually and collectively, they will begin to shape us to become deeper apprentices to Jesus. That we will become his hands and his feet and we will experience life in his kingdom in deeper ways. So over the weeks we've looked at learning to live by faith, transmitting hope, and this morning we're going to look at this small phrase of what does it look like for an apprentice to Jesus to be known by love. And what does our church look like when men and women and young people are committed to learning to be known by love? Well, this command to be known by love is a command that Jesus gives us. It comes directly from Jesus' mouth in John chapter 13. He says this, A new command I give you. Remember, he's speaking to his disciples, his followers, right? Not the crowds. This is to his followers. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but you can't forget that his disciples are a diverse group of people right? They're educated and uneducated. There's a tax collector in there and there's a zealot in there. There's the fisherman in there and there's the higher, higher education. There's all this diverse group. So what was going to define this little ragtag group of followers of Jesus in the first little bit? What was going to define them? It wasn't going to define by their common interests. It wasn't going to be defined by their common occupation. They weren't going to be defined by any common ideas. But what was going to define them, set them apart, Jesus said, was their commitment to love one another in spite of their differences, 
in spite of their different occupations, in spite of their different understanding of how church would operate. In spite of that, Jesus says, what's going to set you apart is that way in which you are committed to love one another. To love one. There's a unity, in other words, in the body of Christ, in his fellowship, there's a unity that transcends common interests or, or opinions. There's a unity, not a uniformity, for there's diversity in the body of Christ, but there's a unity when we are committed to love one another. Despite our differences of opinions or anything else. The Apostle Paul would use the imagery of a body when he talks about the fellowship, when he talks about the church, where each part of the body is necessary and each part is protected by other parts of the body. Not in competition with one another, not a hierarchy of importance, but each one is valued and protected in this body of believers where we love one another and we care for one another not because we all agree and not because we all have the same opinion not because we all look the same but because we are committed to a unity even when there's diversity biblical love is much more than an affinity or feelings it's the decision to will what is best for another person in fact, if you're looking for a small little Bible study, a nice little thing to do, whenever you see the command in the scriptures to love someone, right? replace the word love with desperately want what's best for them. Want what's best for them. That's biblical love, to will the best for another. And passages that are difficult to understand when we think about love as an affinity or a feeling, will all of a sudden begin to make more sense. You might remember the command that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, to love your enemies, right? Well, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense if love is warm, fuzzy butterflies in your stomach where I can't stop thinking about the person, right? I'm supposed to have that kind of feeling for someone who's out to harm me and out to hurt me. Well, Jesus' command doesn't either doesn't make any sense or it, he's crazy unless there's a third option and that is that jesus describes love by wanting what is best for that person so my enemy that person who's out to harm me jesus's command to love them makes perfect sense if love means to will what is best for them so jesus says you've heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i tell you will what is best for your enemy and pray for those who are persecuting you. Now that, that makes sense. And that begins to live a different kind of life. This, by the way, the kind of life, the kind of love that Jesus has for us. For God so wanted what is best for the world that he sent his son Jesus. Right? God so loved this world. So apprentices to Jesus are being known by love our fellowship, the body of Christ, is not known because we all have the same opinions or because we all have the same hobbies or we're all Apple people or all Android people, right? It's because we have a deep commitment to want what is best for each member of our family. There's a deep commitment there. We define this phrase, known by love, we define it this way. 
recognizing the dignity in each person and working for the best in one another. That's what it looks like for a church to be known by love. For this church, this fellowship to be known by love means we recognize the dignity in each person and we work for what is best in one another. Think about that. That in the family of God, there is dignity for each member of our body. There's no hierarchy of importance. Rather, we are working together for the better of each one, to deepen each person's life with God. See, the first thing we're going to need to know, if we're going to learn to be known by love, we need to know that love is not a feeling. That this known by love is not a feeling because we have the same hobbies and the same interests. But love is a choice to will the best for another. So if our church is going to be known, if this place is going to be known for love, or by the way in which we love one another, we have to recognize we belong to one another. Faith is worked out in community where we desperately want what's best for each other. We're willing to listen to one another, pray with and for one another, encourage, sometimes even challenge one another. But it's all done with this resolute commitment to always work for what is best in one another. Not what's for me, but what's best for you. It's a place where you are known, where you experience the love of God through others and through their words and through their actions. It's a place where we are committed to one another with a strong stability where I'm with you through thick and thin. And we encourage one another to grow. That's what it looks like for a family to be known by love. And that kind of life doesn't happen by accident. And it doesn't happen by simply wishing it to happen. It doesn't happen by putting it up on the screen or by talking about it. It will take concerted effort on our parts to learn to be known for this. And that is how we've settled into these three soul-shaping practices. That is how we've come to understand what is it that we can do to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to shape our souls, both individually and the soul of our church, to be known by love. And as I go over these soul-shaping practices, I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit to be your teacher this morning. There may be one or more of these areas where you need to lean in a little bit to see progress in your own life and to see your involvement in this corporate body and to learn to be known by love here. So the first soul-shaping practice is the practice of groups, being involved in groups. See, it's hard to be known by love if we remain anonymous, if we're zipping in and we're just a face in the crowd and we zip out. But the practice of being in groups, particularly smaller groups, a smaller setting where people can know us and we can know them is a practical way in which we can practice vulnerability and inviting people into our journey and to share life with them. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 writes it this way about the body of Christ, about the corporate gathering. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Because life is not meant to be done in isolation. Our faith in God is done in context 
of relationships. And these kind of relationships offer us both encouragement and accountability, and at times a challenge. So if we're going to pursue a deep life with God, we need the encouragement of other brothers and sisters. But that comes when we're vulnerable with them. It comes when we enter into life with them, where we invite them into our story. Then they can encourage us. They can hear our hearts and they can encourage us along. But also, we'll need the challenge or we'll need accountability from brothers and sisters because there are times when I'm tempted to kind of go off the rails and, and kind of forget my life with God. And I need the challenge from a brother or sister to right the wrong and keep me on rail and keep me on path. I need to hear from words. I need to hear encouragement and I need to hear challenge. But I'm way more apt to receive that encouragement or that challenge when somebody knows me, when they know me, and they're not just looking at the surface level, but they know the real me, and they've gotten to know me. But here's the crux of the whole matter. I have to be willing to invite them in. I have to be willing to invite them in to hear my story, and I have to be invited into hearing theirs. And that happens best in the context of a small group. So our growth with God, any amount of growth with God that we experience will always be short-lived if we never invite others into the journey with us. If we never do that. So small groups or being involved in groups are soul-shaping for us because it allows us to be encouraged and challenged. But it's also the place where we can experience being ministered to and prayed for by other people. See, the work of ministering to care and caring for the souls of other people is not just the job of me as the pastor or Jason or Jake. Caring for and ministering for the souls of people is not just the job of a pastor. And, and believe me, I'm not trying to skirt responsibility. I'm not trying to like pass the buck, right? But the beauty of how God has made us and how God has made the church is in, in being ability to minister and care for one another. Our job as, as pastors, quite honestly, is to equip you for the work of the church, to care for one another, to minister for one another, to pray for one another. And that can only happen when you push past the safety of anonymity and you work into the vulnerability of being known. God can speak powerfully through a voice of a trusted friend in your life. But you have to be willing to invite them in. You have to be willing. And that happens in best in the context of a small group. Again, these aren't affinity groups. It's not because we all like the same things. It's not like we all go out and have the same hobbies. But these groups are intentional to help us pay attention to God in our life. We may be different. We may have different opinions and come from different backgrounds. But we have the common interest of pursuing Jesus together and helping to point each other to him. So if we're going to grow in our life of apprenticeship to Jesus, it will have to be done in the context of relationships. Relationships. There's a second uh, soul-shaping practice that we engage in, both individually but then collectively as a church family, and that is intergenerational relationships relationships where we have friendships and relationships across generations. 
The Apostle Paul writes to his young friend Timothy in the letter 2 Timothy. says this, The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And the Bible is just full of mentoring relationships. Moses with Joshua, Eli with Samuel, Naomi with Ruth, Jesus obviously, and the disciples, Paul and Timothy, and others I can go down the list. You, in your own life, you can probably remember someone who poured into you, who spoke into you words of encouragement, who taught you about Jesus and about the life with Jesus, who, who shaped you in your own life with Jesus. You are the product of someone pouring into you. You are the product of some kind of spiritual intergenerational relationship of mentoring of one kind or another. This is how faith grows. It grows from one generation to the next. It's handed down in relationships from one, great, one generation to that. That's how God purposed faith to be handed down. Not to be just implanted into people, but to be shared with people from one person to the next. Think about the impact that an older couple who've been married for 40 years, can have on a young family. A young couple has just been married for five years. Imagine the impact that that older couple can have with a younger couple sharing insight, encouragement, perspective, prayers. When we do child dedication and families come and they bring their children up here and we commit to them as a church body to pray for them and to be an encouragement for them, to give them perspective, to be a support system for them. For parenting is a difficult role. Imagine the difference it would make for a church to have older couples mentoring younger couples in the life of their faith. Mentoring is the way in which we pass along faith by pouring our life into the life of another. That younger family, that younger couple, that younger person gleans so much wisdom and insight and encouragement from those who are more seasoned in their life and in their life of faith. But it's not just a one-way road for mentoring and that kind of intergenerational relationships. is a two-way road. For the one that is trying to pass on faith, it, it solidifies my faith. Anyone who's ever tried to teach a young person or a child about the nature, about the Trinity, that God is eternally existing and God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or resurrection or what's happening in baptism and all those other aspects of our faith. It's difficult to do, to teach it and to talk about it at a more rudimentary level. But when you do, it solidifies your own faith. It strengthens your own faith. It strengthens your own understanding of what God is doing. And so are these relationships that we interact with cross-generationally, they, they are two-way streets. Both those that are recipients of the mentoring, but those who are doing the mentoring receive. And quite honestly, sometimes our young people and our children can be our teachers in a lot of ways. I think children and young people can have a lot to teach us about joy and about vibrancy and about energy about curiosity, about worship without hesitation, about, without hindrances. They have much to teach us. In fact, Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you will have a difficult time. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. There is something very formative about being around children 
and young people. It is very good. You'll notice that we have our young people and our children come with us in the worship time, not just for their benefit, but for ours, to experience them, to be around them. There's something we can learn about our children and about our young people, right? Molly, Tim, that's right on cue. Just have them, just, just keep it going, right? There's something good and formative about our family when we have these intergenerational relationships. Again, think about stories of young families who get around with an older, more saged person in the church. And they encourage in their own life, celebrating their gifts, not dismissing them, but celebrating each contribution of the person. See, being known by love is where we invest in one another. We help us to grow in faith and perseverance. So it's a soul-shaping experience or, or practice that we do when we have intergenerational relationships and our serving projects and our worship gatherings and other places we go. We seek to bring people together in those kind of things because it shapes us to be known by love. One final soul-shaping practice that we engage in, and that is the, the practice of reconciliation and conflict resolution. Because like all families, when we get a diverse group of people together, there will be times when we disagree. But part of being known by love is a deep commitment to stability and staying engaged even when we disagree and even when there's conflict to seek to resolve that conflict and to seek to, to work it out in our deal. We don't just quit and go away, but we stay in involved and engaged. There's an ethic to be known by love that when we have a problem, when we have a, a disagreement, we don't quit on the relationship, but we stay engaged in it to seek resolution as best as we can because we recognize that we belong to one another. This isn't just a social club, but we belong to one another. The Christian faith is essentially relational. And so when we learn to live this way in the context of our relationships, it will necessitate our commitment to stability and humility. Stability and humility in the midst of this. And talking about the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And then in Romans chapter 12 says, if it is all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This doesn't mean that we neglect hurt or sinful behavior just in the name of, quote, keeping the peace, and you never bring up anything that needs to be dealt with. No, it means that we do the hard work in gentleness and in humility to stay engaged with brothers and sisters and we walk into it. So where there's conflict, we walk into it with gentleness and humility. So this commitment to conflict resolution and stability and staying engaged, it shapes our souls because it produces a humility in us. Humility in us. There's the only way we can stay engaged and work towards conflict resolution and stay stable in this place is if we hold on to humility and we learn humility that I don't always have to be right. 
I don't always have to get my way. It's okay. See, often what tears churches apart are surface-level issues. You know, the style of music and the length of service, how often we do communion, how people are dressed, how people are talking. Surface-level issues, unresolved, tear churches apart. And yet, if we learn to stay engaged and remain humble, and I remember I don't have to always be right. I don't have to always have it my way. Then all the quibbling of surface-level issues, it just gets minimized. And we don't worry about those things. We don't sweat the small stuff, right? There's a sense of humility. There's a sense of oneness and, un and unity even in our differences. And when somebody comes in and experiences our church, while we have differences of opinion, there's a high value of unity in it. That's like breathing fresh air. For we don't, we don't sweat the small stuff. We're, we're committed to stability and working those things out. Now, some conflict is more difficult than others. That's for sure. And when something arises that the church needs to address, and we shouldn't just shove it under the rug and just pretend it's not there. We walk towards re reconciliation and conflict resolution, but we walk towards it with gentleness and humility, recognizing the plank in our own eye as we do it. And if there ever was a time where an impasse comes and we have to separate ways, we go to another place, that's fine, but we recognize that we are not enemies. We're part of the family. See, there's a reason why regularly every Sunday we pray for other churches in our region. And it's simply to reinforce to us a very practical way that we are not enemies with the brothers and sisters down the road. While we may disagree on some things, philosophically, practically, even theologically, we are still part of the same family. And we are not enemies. And we simply refuse to drag our brothers and sisters through the mud to make us feel better. There's a unity in the body of Christ, even when there's diversity. And we are deeply committed to that. So these practices, learning to be in groups where people can know us and vulnerably invite them into our story, where we can have intergenerational relationships, where we can mentor, be mentored, and have that relationship. And these kind of stability and conflict resolution, this stability in our life as a church family, these are the things that we center our life around. These are the things we center the church around. And we believe that over time they will shape us to be people who are known by love. And when people see us and experience this church family, they would experience a distinctively different ethic here because we are known for wanting what is best, recognizing the dignity in each member and staying committed to one another for their best. Whenever I think about this idea about being known by love, I regularly go back to the words of St. Francis. And he has this prayer for unity that's been handed down to us. And I regularly come back to this prayer. And I'm going to pray it for us today. I'm going to read over it so you know what's coming. And then I'm going to invite us to just simply pray this prayer as it relates to being known 
by love. I think it captures a lot of what we think about and what we say. So I'll just read it for you and then I'll invite you to pray it as you desire. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. When I think about our church and where we are going, we're listening to Jesus' invitation to enter into life in the kingdom of God. And life in his kingdom is abundantly good. And when we walk in that way, we will be known by a way in which we are learning to live by faith, trusting and confident in Jesus, that we are transmitting hope, proclaiming and demonstrating to the world life in his good kingdom. And we are known by a way in which we love one another. This place is distinctively different. And when we do that, well, we have something to offer this world. Not because we're all the same, but because we have been captivated by life with Jesus. So I'm going to use this prayer. I'm going to invite you to take a posture of prayer. Close your eyes, bow your heads, if that helps you. But I'm going to use this prayer as a prayer as we walk out, or as we kind of close in this part of the service. And I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to just simply pray this prayer in your own heart, that this would be true of us as a family. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life.